You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. What are these people doing? Whatever it is, it's infectious. We'll find out why we've evolved to do this or something like this. Also, we laugh at sarcasm, slapstick, absurdity, exaggeration, irony. But the pun? And I was talking to someone. They said that the bass is the most underrated instrument. And I said, yeah, like where would we be without bass? We'd be in a world of treble. With that one, he went off the cliff. Ouch. Okay, your ears have landed on the Science of Humor show. Yeah, and they're already hurting. I'm sure you're thinking, just leave it to those nerdy scientists to take something as natural as laughter and dissect and analyze it. (laughs) Those scientists, they're a guaranteed riot. They are, and so are our listeners. Yes, you, the listener, have been submitting your favorite science jokes. Yes, science jokes on Facebook, and we've picked up a few elsewhere, and we'll share what we've amassed starting now. Seth. Yes, Molly. Two hydrogen atoms walk into a bar. Stop me if you've heard this one, have you? Uh, Not yet. Okay. Two hydrogen atoms walk into a bar. One says, I've lost my electron. The other says, are you sure? And the first replies, yes, I'm positive. Yeah, okay, but I can I can see that one and raise you one. Some helium gas drifts into a bar. The bartender says, well, we don't serve helium here. The helium doesn't react. And apparently neither do I. Okay, well, you need to know that helium is an inert gas for, for that one. Two bacteria walk into a bar. <laughs> the bartender says, we don't serve bacteria here. The bacteria say, but we work here. We're staff. <laughs> I'm Seth Shostak. (laughs) Now you have a feeling of where this show is headed. I'm Molly Bentley. No, K-N-O-W, laughing matter on Big Picture Science. (laughs) Okay, but wait, we didn't even ask whether science and jokes are natural companions. I mean, science deals in some pretty heavy ideas and can be quite literal. Well, Brian Mallow believes that science and humor can get along. I mean, his business card reads, Science Comedian. That's a title he apparently did not have to fight for when he began his humor career. Brian, you're a science comedian. Now, some might say that science and comedy don't naturally go hand in hand. I'm not sure that they don't, but I'll say, first of all, that uh, it wasn't so calculated. I started doing stand-up over two decades ago, and my love of science and science fiction is much older than that. So from the very beginning, when I started stand-up, my interest in science and the kind of language, the way I like to talk, informed my comedy. So way before I realized I should call it science comedy, I was already doing it, you know? 
if I notice that when my mom lost weight, my dad gained weight and vice versa, then I'm going to think, huh, maybe that's like the conservation of mass within our family. And I'll have a theory that you never actually lose weight. You just give it to somebody else. Fat can be neither created nor destroyed. One of the basic laws. I've seen you do live stand-up, which I think just takes a lot of guts to get up there. I mean, not just to be a comedian, but to get up there and make jokes about science. You know, you mentioned that thing about like comedy and, and science not seeming naturally to go together necessarily. But I like this one little connection that comedy, there's usually a setup and a punchline. And to me, that's a little bit like for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction that you have an action and then a reaction. You have a setup and then a punchline. Now, you're not a scientist, right? right? Although you may be by now with all the material that you've covered. (laughs) Do scientists have a sense of humor? Does it take a non-scientist to tell jokes? And I mean, because people would say scientists are quite literal. Okay, yes. I have said that myself, in fact. Are you setting me up? Uh, Thank you. Uh, I think scientists have a sense of humor. I think scientists, the, the stereotype of a scientist being dry or bookish, I think scientists get a really bad rap compared to most other people because look at scientists more than anyone, have maintained their childlike wonder with the world. And they've devoted not only just their jobs, but their lives to just the pursuit, the satisfaction of their own curiosity about something like, hey, why does a frog do that? Or why is that bug doing that? And, you know, compared to that, bankers and lawyers, and those people are boring. Eh, no offense, but they're not listening to the show. <laughs> we may hear from the bankers and lawyers. Oh, you maybe. don't think they're listening to the oh, show? Oh, well, maybe. <laughs> you know, the ones that are are probably pretty cool. <laughs> we we can fix this in post, right? No, but I could say this. If you're a non-cool banker or lawyer <laughs> listening to the show now, please let us know. We exactly. Can wrong if you identify spot. yourself that way. <laughs> but, you know, like scientists, I've, I've found, I've actually interviewed a lot of scientists. I think for the most part, they skew the other way. That I think they're really interesting people and they have other interests outside it, but they're very passionate about science. And that's being very passionate about just the way things work, the way the world works and the way the universe works. But you do do this bit about talking to <laughs> yes. scientists in the audience because your audience often are scientists. They, yeah. I get a mix. Like, you know, I play to specialized groups. Like I could play to a room full of physicists. Right. But the reaction must be a lot when you go to the movies, a science fiction movie with someone who's a scientist and they just sit there and sort of shake their head <laughs> and they can't believe it. Is it a little bit like that when you were playing to a room full of scientists when you're sometimes, telling jokes? There really is a thing. And then again, I don't want to generalize, but some scientists sometimes have kind of a, a literal sense of humor. And I have run into that where you're saying something, you, you should get a little the eye should get a little leeway to tell a joke. The best example I have is that I was once performing and I was telling a story about uh, the heat in Arizona and I had said that it was 110 degrees in Tucson and a couple hours away in Lake Havasu it was 125 degrees and that just sounds like science fiction. You're talking about the surface of Venus and right then in the back of the room someone goes no! <laughs> Venus is much hotter than that and, and I knew that. I actually knew that but I was using a comedic device called exaggeration. Was he a planetary scientist? You know, I don't I don't know who it I don't know who it was. I didn't uh, talk to them after the show, but I have used them in my act ever since. Well, you've also described looking at the scientists who look at you and they sort of nod and sort of acknowledge right. that, that was humorous. I will acknowledge that that was humorous. They'll admit that it's funny, but they won't come right out and Right, right. I mean, because what we really want is that we want laughter, and sometimes you get an applause, and it's kind of interesting. Comics, we, we like getting an applause, but we're after the laugh, that because the laugh is really an indicator that you took someone by surprise. Uh, because everything, <laughs> what you said was so unexpected. Well, but about- sometimes it's this thing where they're, where, uh, 
some jokes where they're like looking it over and and what I say is they found the joke sound. And so I have their it's like I can carry on. It's like, okay, they they didn't quite laugh, but the but they are acknowledging that there were no flaws in the joke. Science comedian is Brian Mallow's title. I saw a movie with my friend Chuck, and I don't like seeing movies with him because he always has to sit in the front row because he thinks he gets to see the movie before anybody else. And you can't argue with him because he always has the trump card. The speed of light is finite, Brian. And it's true, the speed of light is finite, but it's very fast. 186,000 miles per second. So if you had a theater, and this is what I told Chuck, if you had a theater 186,000 miles long, you would only see the movie one second before the guy in the last row. And he said, yeah, but you'd hear it a week and a half before him. (laughs) And yes, I did do the math for that joke. Thank you. And he'll be back with some biology and quantum physics zingers later in this show. Okay, now, maybe you've been able to hold back your laughter this far in the program. You're a tough audience. But if you find yourself giggling at all, turns out there's an evolutionary reason for your guffaw. Laughter, a Scientific Investigation, is the title of a book by Robert Provine, who's a neuroscientist at the University of Maryland at Baltimore. Robert, why do people laugh? I mean, you know, what does that do for us? Well, our lives are filled with laughter. And we often neglect the commonplace, but when we start to actually measure what people do and when we do it, we found a lot of surprises. You know, for example, you know, laughter is really not about jokes or humor. Only 10 or 15% of laughter follows anything that's remotely joke-like. So we're laughing all the time, but it's not because of jokes. Well, I'm thinking about what you just said there, and it is true that many of my colleagues seem to laugh almost reflexively. It's sort of a nervous reaction. Are they trying to use laughter as some sort of social lubricant? Yeah, well, laughter is about relationships, not jokes. So if you listen to when people laugh, it's after comments like, well, well, I've got to go now. (laughs) Okay, so it's not about jokes, but it's about relationships. If you want to laugh more, You need to be in the presence of other people. In fact, laughter is 30 times more common in social than solitary situations. So people don't laugh at their own jokes. I mean, they they don't sit around laughing too much when they're alone. Yeah, that would be a very unusual thing. When you do laugh when you're alone, it may be while watching television or listening to the radio, reading a book, or thinking about other people in your head. But there is the social dimension. But if you remove the vicarious social stimulation of media... Laughter virtually disappears when you're alone. Is laughter then some sort of reflex, or is it under our conscious control? I mean, you know, obviously an actor can make themselves laugh, and I suppose all of us can do it to some degree as well. But can we stop ourselves from laughing? We're good at inhibiting laughter, but we're not good at producing it on command. And that's a very important distinction. Now, for example, when you listen to people try to rationalize why they laugh, basically you have people trying to rationalize the irrational because we don't make a decision to laugh. We don't decide, oh, I'm going to laugh now. (laughs) It just happens. So we don't have conscious control over laughter. In that respect, it's like crying. We don't decide to cry. Of course, adults laugh a lot and don't cry much anymore. But children both laugh and cry a lot. Laughter and crying have a lot of things in common. They're both human instincts, and they're not under conscious control. The easiest way to test that is just simply to ask someone to laugh. Yeah, for example, will you laugh for me now? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, hard for me to do in a, in a natural way. Actually, I don't think I can do it. 
people have an idea about, I laugh for this reason, I laugh to put someone at ease, I laugh because someone did something funny, uh, it was nervous laughter. All of these are attempts to rationalize an irrational process. So basically, your brain is on automatic and produces these things. And if you attempt to speak laughter, it's obviously false. Laughter is clearly something very deep in our makeup. I mean, this has been hardwired into us. And I kind of wonder, are humans the only species that laugh? I thought that some of our simian pals laugh a little bit, but maybe that's a misreading of what they're doing. Yeah, going back to Aristotle, there was the notion that laughter was uniquely human, but recent research has indicated that it's not. So we have laughter falling by the wayside, like tool use and so on as being uniquely human. Laughter is not uniquely human. However, only humans laugh with a ha-ha laugh. If we consider our primate cousins and other great apes, they have their own laughter, but it sounds like panting. In fact, if you take recordings of primate laughter and play them to groups and ask people, what are you listening to? No one would recognize it as laughter. I'll, I'll give you a, an example of chimpanzee laughter, for example. <laughs> or more guttural. <laughs> okay, it's an in and out panting sound. During the course of evolution, the pant-pant was transformed into the human ha-ha. But it's basically the same reaction. So presumably, there's some evolutionary benefit to laughter. I mean, this, this is obviously the big question. Why do we laugh? Why do they laugh? Why, why does any of us ever laugh? Where did this come from? What function does it serve? Well, laughter is the sound of labored breathing of rough-and-tumble play. It's obvious when you look at the uh, great apes who laugh. <laughs> it's a panting sound. That's the sound you make being tickled or rolling around the ground in rough and tumble. So pant, pant, the sound of labored breathing, the sound of physical play, was transformed into the human ha-ha. The domain's different. Well, you look at the laughter of children, it's more often physical, or the laughter of chimpanzees is more often physical. Uh, when you look at human adults, the domain of play is more conversational, linguistic, cognitive. But it has its origin in play. And it's important to have these play vocalizations because it's the signal that, you know, I'm not attacking you. This is play. One thing that's often struck me is the fact that laughter is so contagious. And if you're sitting around at a dinner party and somebody starts laughing... Yeah, I have the tendency to start laughing myself, even though I'm not laughing at whatever it was that precipitated their laughter. Maybe it was some comment by somebody that I, I didn't find particularly amusing. But just the fact that they're laughing is an incentive to laugh. <laughs> how, how does that work? Well, contagious laughter is another reminder that laughter is not under conscious control. Uh, it also suggests that we have a brain mechanism that's attuned to the sound of laughter. And when that sound is produced, we produce the sound that... Uh, we just heard. So when you hear another person laugh, you don't decide, oh, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> it just happens. And so this gives us a, a deep insight into both human social relationships, you know, and they're under conscious control. It also gives us some insights into the neural mechanism of speech perception. You know, for example, there's thousands of different languages and hundreds of thousands of dialects. And people have uh, speculated about brain mechanisms for the detection of the phonemic structures of speech and so on. That's challenging because of the variability and complexity. 
if you're interested in pursuing these questions, uh, why not get a vocalization that's part of the human, universal human vocabulary, laughter? So everyone speaks ha-ha-ha in pretty much the same way. And if we've evolved a brain mechanism for the detection of specific sounds, that's where we're most likely to find it. So when you're sitting in an audience and laugh along with other people in the audience, you're not only learning something very important about unconscious control of human social behavior, but you're learning something important about brain mechanisms of speech perception. What surprising things have you discovered? If we uh, look at what's said before people laugh, we found only perhaps 10 to 15 percent of uh, people laugh following something that's any kind of formal effort at humor. So we were able to discard the notion that laughter and humor are essentially the same things. Another thing that we found is that males are the best laugh-getters. Interesting. Uh, Both males and females are more likely to laugh after a comment by males than females. And this is one of the reasons why uh, most professional comedians are male. It's not just a matter of sexism in the entertainment industry. You know, we certainly don't see that in other places like in music. But basically, uh, whether it's amongst professional comedians or in everyday uh, social life, uh, males are the best laugh-getters. Has your research taught you anything about humor? Why, you know, some comments work well, making people laugh, and why others just bomb out? What is it about the the comments that bomb out that cause them to bomb? Well, humor probably has more to do with the delivery than the actual material. Uh, But a common theme running through all human research is it has to do with a discontinuity. You have uh, a logical train moving in one direction, then it suddenly swerves off into another. So laughter's a fact. Humor's conjecture. Robert Provine, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. Robert Provine is a neuroscientist at the University of Maryland in Baltimore and author of the book, Laughter, a Scientific Investigation. Okay, more jokes from the very best science jokes. This one veers a bit more towards philosophy. Can't wait. Rene Descartes was sitting at a bar. You have to picture this. Rene Descartes sitting at a bar. The bartender comes over and asks if he would like a beer. Rene replies, I think not. And then he vanished. Well, that's pretty clever. Uh, if, if it a bit obscure. And, and physics, which in this case is like philosophy. Okay, Heisenberg gets stopped on the motorway by the police. The cop says, do you know how fast you were going, sir? And Heisenberg replies, no, but I know exactly where I am. Makes you wonder if scientists have any friends at all. Coming up, once you've caught your breath, once your sides have stopped splitting, it's hard to say that, there are more jokes from humans and also computers. It's no laughing matter on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to No Laughing Matter. 
I shouldn't even laugh. I mean, we're we're all getting older, right? We are. I know I am. I I already have gray hair. Uh, plenty of it too. I don't really care though. I don't care. I don't care if it goes all gray. I don't care if it goes blue. You know, I don't care if it goes ultraviolet. <laughs> In fact, if I uh, lose my hair, that's what I'm gonna say. I'm not bald. I have hair. It's just outside your visible spectrum. <laughs> don't touch. It's there. You just gotta have faith. <laughs> Science comedian Brian Mallow on stage. He's also here with us with a few more insights into the humorous side of science, if it's not obvious what the humorous side is. So, Brian, what sort of jokes get a groan? Puns seem to get groans more than anything. I think they're going to find a gene for puns. I think it is actually <laughs> something that you can you can isolate. I do like the phrase sense of humor because that's often what it feels like to me. Like I have a sense for humorous potential. In a conversation, sometimes it seems so obvious to me what the next thing is that should be said. and But when I say it, everyone laughs in a way that it indicates they weren't thinking it. And maybe maybe to you, something else was the obvious thing to say next. But So if it's a sense of humor, then you knows it when you hear it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. In fact, I can even prompt you a bit further. Um, it'd be great if you could do some biology jokes, because Jay, who works on the show, is really hoping to get some biology jokes that he can include on his test for his students. I had done a show a few years ago at this at the Marion Koshland Science Museum in Washington, D.C., and they wanted me to come back the next year, and they said, but could you do a new show to go along with our exhibit on infectious disease? Could you do a show about infectious disease? Always a source of comedy. Yes, of course. So, And because I wanted the gig, I said yes. And then it went back. It's like, uh, what did I just commit myself to? And then I thought, wait a minute. Bill Cosby could probably do 20 minutes on having a cold. And then I realized I'm not Bill Cosby. <laughs> Turns out it's not that easy to just be Bill Cosby. And in the end, I stumbled upon this idea to use this old structure of bar jokes. Like a virus walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve viruses in this bar. The virus replaces the bartender and says, now we do. <laughs> then it just became a series of puns like um, an infectious disease walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve infectious diseases in this bar. The infectious disease says, well, you're not a very good host. And then I veer off into different things like a neutrino walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve neutrinos in this bar. The neutrino says, hey, I was just passing through. But the question I have in this when I was listening to this, and I think it's all very funny, is how far you're willing to go in being esoteric because you do bring up Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> right. Uh, Schrodinger's cat walks into a bar and doesn't. But it kind of helps that you've done three or four in a row with the exact same structure and then that. But it also raises the question, if you're willing to make jokes about things like neutrinos, which pass through the earth, and that's why they can pass through bars like that, and um, Schrodinger's cat, there must be times when you bomb. <laughs> well, when, do you, you know, when do you bomb? Give me an example when you bomb. Only in the deep, dark past. Is that still a, a term that they use in the entertainment, oh, yeah. in, sure. entertainment biz? Sure, I bombing? think that's eternal. I think that'll always be the case. And some, you know... I can't, I, I can think of horrible, miserable experiences in the past where because I was trying to do something like what I do now without Schrodinger's cat, without being this obscure, but with stuff like that conservation of mass bit, that's what I used to do in nightclubs all the time. And people didn't come for science comedy. I was just one of the comedians on the bill. The thing is, in the past few years, for the most part, I'm going to places that, that are, are, interested in the idea of science comedy or like the show you saw at the Punchline Comedy Club in San Francisco, it was advertised as an evening of science humor. It was self-selecting. The people that came wanted to hear it and it's not something that you get, you know, we're not overexposed to it. 
let's just talk just a moment about science fiction films because I wonder if as a science fiction fan you have a particular um, opinion about the liberties that some films use with science facts. And the one that I know that you like to pick on is what you call um, the original Star Wars, Star Wars 4. Yes, A New Hope. Okay, why, why Star Wars? Star Wars, most people don't even really consider it science fiction as much as fantasy. And, you know, there are certain science fiction devices that I happily embrace. Faster than light travel, you know, where would we be in science fiction if we couldn't let them have some faster than light travel, some occasional time travel? There's a lot of things that will give them, hey, I'll give you even lightsabers because they're neat. Um, But you draw the line. Yeah, and what happens is, so I'll give you all these other things, but there's the classic scene where Obi-Wan and Luke need a ship to go on their adventure, and they meet Han Solo, and he's bragging when he says, you haven't heard of the Millennium Falcon, it's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, which sounds impressive, but a parsec, it's just that it's not a unit of time, and it sounds like it because it has sec in it. But it's a unit of distance. To, but but you, it's an impressive unit of distance. It's like 31 trillion kilometers it, or something. Pr- yeah, right? it's, yes. But he could have made up a word. He could have made up something because it happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He would have been fine making up any global anything. But to me, that's like if you were supposed to meet someone somewhere and you showed up late and, and you go, I'm sorry, have you been waiting long? And they go, yeah, about 15 yards. I'm, I'm sitting here <laughs> counting the centimeters. I mean, it's that wrong. Is it just in the screenplay? Is it in the book, Parsec? That scene is exactly like that in the movie, but it doesn't say parsec. It says it's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 standard time parts. So it it says time parts, and then they used parsecs as if that's the equivalent of time parts. But really, time parts. Isn't that great, right? I, I love as, as imaginative as it is, like, is that where his imagination ran, ran out on time parts? Like, they couldn't even, a civilization that never named their basic unit of time uh, sounds kind of, they have Jedi Knights, they have. The and that Death was the Star. best they could do. Yeah. But I mean, again, I'm not knocking Star Wars. Please, no negative fan mail. I love the movie. I couldn't like it anymore. I just think that that's funny. I think you've done the damage already. I think you <laughs> now totally declaring have. that you love Star Wars. Is it's too late? It's even worse. And the, but you made the me do is this, out of the barn. Molly. This is your fault. I'm going to forward <laughs> all my ma- hate mail to you. If people want to see more of you, hear more of you, how do they do that? They could follow me around like you've been doing, or they could, uh, <laughs> well, sciencecomedian.com. That's good. That's the hub. Um, it's helped to have that and to start calling myself that so that people, when they go looking for something like this, they end up finding me. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. It was a delight to talk to you. Oh, thank you for having me. It was great. Brian Mallow is a and the science comedian. Now, if you remember, Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft sent out of the solar system. And each of them had a plaque fastened to the outside, a kind of a greeting card in case they were ever picked up by aliens. The plaque had uh, things that would tell you where the spacecraft came from and also an etching showing a nude couple. You know the image. It's got a man and a woman holding hands. They're naked and then it has like... What it, what it always looked like to me was just like a, a menu with directions to the restaurant. It's all laid out very simply. We look very delicious. We look very easy to eat too. We don't, we don't have, we don't look, we have no claws. We don't have teeth. We don't have a shell. We, you know, we're easier to eat than a pistachio or a crab. And I mean, I don't know what the odds, I don't know what the odds are that 
that anything is ever going to find this, this message in a bottle in the vastness of space. But what if something does find it? And what if they're not friendly? What if they're hungry? So, Seth, would aliens take one look at the message and conclude that humans were nothing but a tasty treat? Well, I doubt it. I doubt their biochemistry is close enough for them to regard us as a treat, tasty or otherwise. I was worried about that. The man holds up his hand. Somebody told me that's the universal symbol of war. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Seth, you give a lot of talks. Yes, I do. And occasionally you use humor. Very occasionally, yes. (laughs) Putting that in quotes. This can be sort of a fun talk, at least in principle. I hope it will be in practice as well, because it's science and science fiction. Such as the presentation you gave at Arizona State University. Yep, I was talking for one about being one of the consultants when they were filming the movie Contact. I was called up almost every day by Warner Brothers, somebody at Warner Brothers asking questions. Typical question would be, uh, they called up one day, the art department, and said, so Seth, what does it look like when you fly through a wormhole? And, you know, my first response to this was, well, I, you know, I did that two weeks ago. Let me see if I can... Re- <laughs> I said, but in most films, what they do is they simply use some computer animation to make it look like you're flying through a pig's intestine. I said, but, in fact, if you were to, you know, the, the equations of uh, special relativity suggest that if you got close to the speed of light, then the entire universe would collapse into a bright light in front of you and a bright light behind you. So I guess that's what it would look like, but that doesn't sound very interesting visually. And they said, okay, thank you, hung up, and then animated a pig's intestine. <laughs> this is... So Seth, how much improvising goes into your talks, a talk like this one? Well, a lot of the humor is improvised. Not all of it, but a lot of it is, because those are the jokes that make me laugh, because I haven't heard them before. How do you find that humor helps when you're giving presentations on science? I think it's very simple. With humor, you get the attention of the audience. It's just a matter of, look, if they're not paying attention, it doesn't matter what the content is. And, you know, there has been this idea that science is a serious matter and it shouldn't have humor. But on the other hand, what good is being serious if nobody's listening? So is there ever a time when humor is not appropriate when you're talking about science? Well, it's hard to think of one, but perhaps if you were talking about the science of some dread-wasting disease, maybe that wouldn't be an appropriate place for humor. How do you know when you have the audience, when you're giving a talk to a number of people about cosmology, SETI, astronomy, whatever it is, how do you know when you have them? Well, of course, you can look around and you can see if their eyes are sort of drifting off. If they're not paying attention, you probably don't have them. Also, if they're not laughing at the jokes, that's never a good sign. Now, finally, just on the question of of humor and the role of humor when we think about life beyond this planet, do you think other species, alien species, would have evolved humor or laughter? It seems that laughter is something that is useful for our social skills. And since social animals seem to be the ones that tend to develop intelligence, maybe they do have humor. I can't say that I'm at all convinced that our jokes would amuse them and vice versa, but having humor, it's sort of like, would they have music? And I think there's a good chance they'd have both. Thank you, Seth. It's been a pleasure. Well, Seth, that may be the straightest interview I've ever heard you do. Is that right? That's disappointing from many points of view. I I was telling lots of jokes there, Molly. (laughs) Just outside of my, my range of hearing. It's okay to be earnest occasionally, right? Well, that's what Hemingway said. Yeah, I'm all for it. Okay, so you might be thinking, jokes, 
You call those jokes? My computer could come up with better material. Hey, would that be a stand-up bit or perhaps humor with bite? Yeah, just as I suspected. My computer could come up with better material. <laughs> that is according to Tony Veal. He's a computer scientist who studies how to program natural language skills into machines. And it turns out that humor is not all fun and games, but fundamental to understanding how language works. So Tony wants to give his Silicon scribes a sense of the silly. Humor really is the kind of epiphenomenon that indicates a mechanism or ability to handle surprise, to handle the unexpected diversions from its scripted knowledge and really to adapt to its environment. So it really is very important, to, even though we often think of it as somewhat frivolous. Well, how do you do this, Tony? How do you teach a computer to tell jokes? Do you sort of start with basic stories, a basic joke, and then build it out maybe with a pun and work your way to irony or something like that? Yes, we're looking at irony. There has been a lot of successful work with puns. Graham Ritchie and Kim Binstead and our colleagues have done some very nice work with puns, which Graham especially has been using in computer models to interact with autistic children who find it very convenient to interact with machines, and they actually quite enjoy the humor that is generated at the pun level. One of the problems with puns is that I don't really think of them as a scalable form of humor, that if you build a really good pun system, that you can turn around next year and say, okay, well, let's turn this into an irony system. So we work with irony, and that turns out to be really relevant because when you're trying to get a computer to analyze text on the web, it becomes, it's incredibly colloquial and ironic, filled with irony and sarcasm and wordplay. And just to get basic computational analysis of whether someone is giving a good review to a hotel or to a camera, you need to have computers with some basic sense of irony and sarcasm. Examples like people saying that they're as tanned as an Irishman. Ireland has terrible weather. If you see someone who's tanned in Ireland, they're probably a tourist. So as tanned as an Irishman is ironic. It sounds to me that to make a computer that can actually tell good jokes, things that people would laugh at, requires a computer that's just about as clever as we are. That is the major bottleneck. We can do just about well enough for detecting things like irony by looking at all the subtle cues that people use in text. For instance, we often put the word about in front of a comparison. So you would say he was about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a slice of angel food cake. And the about there is telling the listener, hey, look out, I'm going to throw something creative at you, a curveball, be ready for it. But when they tell jokes, they really are tapping into a huge shared reservoir of world knowledge. And there's the bottleneck for artificial intelligence, quite frankly, outside of the humor field as well. Just sharing the same world and having the same experiences of the world is absolutely fundamental. Well, since humor is dependent on having this very extensive shared knowledge of your culture, or for that matter, uh, life on Earth, how do you build that into the machines? Ah, yes. 20 years ago, I've been working on this kind of problem for that long. It would have been the kind of question you'd answer by saying, build a giant knowledge base by hand. In the last 10 years, people have found that mining information and knowledge from the web is the way to go, that we reveal a lot about ourselves and about our cultural dispositions and norms in how we write and how we communicate on the web. And computers can actually learn a great deal of the knowledge that they need to possess looking at the web, from looking at frequent questions, from looking at frequent remarks. The uh, bottom line question is, 
how far have you gotten with this? I mean, do you have any computers that are sitting around, you know, telling knee slappers at parties? No. <laughs> no, we don't have any computers at parties, period. Maybe we should try that. Right now, computers can generate puns that will light up a schoolyard. Children do like the puns that computers can generate. Well, how far have you gotten with this? I mean, can you give me an example of a uh, computer joke or maybe your favorite joke told to you by a computer? Ah, I'm afraid there is no such... I don't have any favorites. I'm quite disappointed with what computers uh, produce. Some computer models generate more adult-themed humor, but they're somewhat formulaic in the same vein as puns. So jokes of the, that's what she said variety, or your mama jokes. Anything that fits a template, that's where we are at the moment. And I think we'll be exploring the full range of templates in the next 10 years or so. But computers that can generate conceptual humor that will actually be provoking and push our boundaries, the boundaries of our categories and how we view the world. We're looking at 50 years, I think. Okay, so there's no immediate prospect of computers being wheeled out onto the stage of my local stand-up comedy theater. Let me say that there's a possibility in a double act. I can imagine a computer being a straight man in a double act. I think that would be quite successful, actually. People bring expectations to humor, and humor really is all about subverting expectations and forcing people to react when their conventional wisdom falls short. People have conventional wisdom about computers, so there would be a form of meta-joke if a computer was involved in a stand-up act. Tony Veal, thank you so much for uh, talking with me. Thank you, Seth. Tony Veal keeps his computers in silicon stitches, and someday it may be the other way around. He's a computer scientist and natural language processing researcher at University College Dublin in Ireland. Okay, Molly, here's another winner from our collection of listeners' favorite science jokes. Who are the judges on these jokes? I'm the judge. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. go ahead. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Entropy isn't what it used to be. Are we going for the thermodynamics crowd? I guess so. A four? Okay, here's one. Uh, it falls into the relativity theory humor. Well, that could be big. Or then again, it could be small. I guess it all depends on your reference frame. Okay, a student is riding the train in Massachusetts, looks up and sees Albert Einstein sitting next to him. Excited, the student asks Einstein, excuse me, does Boston stop at this train? Clearly, humor is all relative <laughs> on no laughing matter. More hilarity to come. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Seth, can you tell another science joke? Okay, here's another one from a listener. What do you call the random path that a cow makes as it grazes in the pasture? Answer, bovian motion. <laughs> All right, I'm not sure it's that funny. Well, the group isn't laughing at your joke, Seth, but only because they're not laughing at any joke. A session of laughter yoga has convened in downtown San Francisco. Laughter yoga sessions have popped up all over. They combine yoga breathing techniques with laughter. Laughter yoga groups claim many health benefits from improved immune systems to better cardiovascular health and so on. No, we'll let the studies decide that. 
but laughter at least is a big stress buster, and that's serious business. Molly went to unwind with Tommy Westerfield, the laughter yoga teacher at We Are Laughter in the City by the Bay. The laughter yoga was actually created in India by Dr. Kataria. But the idea is that any practice which puts you into being present is a yogic practice. Everything you said could be found in traditional meditation. So what are the benefits of laughter in particular? It helps you get out of your head. It helps you get out of that thinking, critical, evaluating mind that eventually gets overridden to where you're actually just enjoying yourself for no other reason than the fact that you're enjoying yourself. Okay, and now we're going to do hula hoop laughter. And what I ask you to do is just put your hips. You had a, a form of laughter yoga called the hula hoop laughter. What was that? Well, the hula hoop laughter is pretending like you are actually having a hula hoop. So you rotate your hips and also having just some fun and laughter while we're doing it. <laughs> we're now going to do mad scientist laughter. So we're going to make a concoction in our laboratory. <laughs> And apparently it didn't matter whether it was real laughter or fake laughter because there were moments where I felt myself thinking, okay, this is fake, it's a little forced, but then it gave way to something else. Does it matter if it's real or fake laughter? It absolutely doesn't matter because physically your body is going to have the same physical reactions a fake laughing or authentic laughing. Okay, I'm Laurelyn. At first it felt a little contrived and phony, and then I just let go of that and enjoyed it. During the last piece, which is I call the laughter meditation, where people are laughing as long and as loud as they want, that will go on actually for as long as 10, 15 minutes, and people are continuously laughing. It dies down, but there's still one person here or one person there laughing. And then all of a sudden, the whole group begins up and starts a whole new round. Tommy Westerfield is the laughter yoga teacher at We Are Laughter in San Francisco. What strikes me about it is how infectious that laughter really was, Molly. I know. It was hard not to join in. And who wouldn't want to join in? It felt great to laugh. But it does get at the question of why laughter is so infectious. And not just among human primates. Our chimpanzee and ape cousins like to giggle, it seems. Primatologist Franz Duval has led groundbreaking work in the social behavior of primates. And he says infectious laughter may have the evolutionary advantage of making us more loving to each other in the long run. And Dr. Duvall gets an earful of happy chimpanzees at his office near the Yerkes Primate Center. Now, Franz, is it true that you can hear chimps laugh from where you sit at your office at the Primate Center? Yeah, chimps have a, have a pretty loud laugh. It's not as high-pitched as in humans. So, for, so if you ever walk by a, a schoolyard with children, it's incredible the noise that human children produce. And that's not what chimps do. But chimps have more like this... <coughs> type laughing so it's it's more low pitched. And so while you sit there in your office you can you can hear them because they're nearby in the primate center you can actually hear them laughing. Yeah they 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 are under my window usually and <laughs> and they may be tickling each other that's a typical situation where chimpanzees laugh usually the young ones 
and and uh, of course, uh, since laughing is contagious, it, it has an effect on me. It is, it, I always find it a very happy sound. When you listen to these chimps laugh, you find yourself laughing and smiling too because it's such a happy sound, which gets at the idea that laughter is contagious. It's profoundly infectious, at least it is for humans, and it sounds like it is with chimpanzees and apes too. Will, will a laugh catch on among a group of our primate cousins? There's actually a study on that, on juvenile orangutans, which were filmed during play bouts. And yes, when one of them shows a play face, as we call it, a laugh expression, then others will automatically do the same. It's a bit like the contagiousness that you have in humans. And of course, contagious emotions and contagious expressions are very common, like yawning is contagious. If you talk with someone who's crying and frowning, you will adopt that same facial expression. And so a lot of things are contagious. And laughing is one of those weird behaviors. So an interesting phrase comes up when we talk about this, and that's body mapping. And and indeed, that comes up with yawning is one example of that. Laughter is another. I wonder if you could describe what body mapping is and what its evolutionary purpose is. So, yeah, this relates probably to mirror neurons. Uh, Mirror neurons are neurons in the brain that help you connect the movements of somebody else to your own bodily movements. And these mirror neurons were actually discovered in monkeys, not in humans. We have actually more evidence for it in monkeys. And so it's a very old system probably called a mirroring system where the body movements of somebody else have an effect on your own brain that basically you map your own body onto somebody else's body. And so if someone yawns, you you automatically are going to yawn with that person. If someone laughs, if someone frowns, all the facial expressions that are emotionally relevant and also body movements, you mimic from others. And this mimicry is also something we find pleasant and it creates bonds between people. And so, for example, if you send a young person on a date with someone who has been instructed to mimic all their body movements, they're going to like that person more at the end than someone who has been instructed to go against your body movements because we like mimicry and we consider it a positive sign if someone does that to us. Of course, we're able to not mimic as well. I mean, if everyone's mirror neurons were constantly engaged, we would all be doing the same thing all the time, but that's not the case. So we are also able to act independently of our mirror neurons. We are capable of doing that, but we actually have trouble with that. And so if you are in a room that starts applauding someone, they start clapping, and you would just sit there and not clap, you would not feel right. So you you clap along with everybody else. If you are in a room where everyone is laughing and falling out of their chairs because something is so absolutely funny, you will be laughing even if you have not heard the joke, you don't know what it is about. And so, yes, we can suppress these reactions, and we are individual, independent entities, but much of the time we're actually not. Imitation is an expression of empathy. That's something that you've written about. But when apes imitate each other, how much do we know about whether they're actually identifying with another ape mind? And how much of it is just a stimulus response and they're not necessarily cognizant that another ape is feeling or thinking anything? Yeah, the usual definitions of empathy in in psychology are very very highfalutin. They're very like at the level of I understand that you understand and I have the feeling that you have the feeling, (laughs) some sort of cognitive interpretation. But empathy actually starts at a much more basic level. And so there's now, for example, empathy studies in rats and mice. Because empathy, the basic 
principle of it is that you are in touch with the emotions and, and the body language of somebody else, and that's how it starts. And those things can be observed in many animals. And so your dog has empathy and will, for example, lick your face when you're sad and things like that. So dogs have all these empathy reactions, but I don't think dogs necessarily look at you as an entity who has feelings like they have. And say, All these cognitive interpretations come later, and we human adults, we have very complex forms of empathy where we even, when we read a book, we can empathize with the character in the book, which is a very complex thing to do. But uh, that all comes much later. And, and if you look at, let's say, babies or young children, you're more looking at the level of empathy that we see in dogs and monkeys and so on. What's interesting is that while empathy is automatic or instinctual in primates and other animals, sympathy is not. And I wonder if you could tell me what the distinction is between empathy and sympathy and how the two are connected. Yeah, sympathy is more action-oriented. So I, I see someone in trouble, like the Good Samaritan story is a story of sympathy. So empathy is the capacity where I can connect with you and understand your situation. This can be positive. Most of the time I think it is positive, but I can also use that for negative purposes. And so, for example, a torturer also needs to have empathy because he needs to understand what is painful for somebody else. So empathy is a sort of neutral characteristic of understanding others, and sympathy comes into play when you want to improve the situation of someone who's, for example, distressed, so someone who's in trouble, you want to improve their situation and help them, and that's where sympathy comes into play, and so sympathy is more other-oriented and more action-oriented than empathy is. Do non-human primates express sympathy? Oh, they do this all the time. I mean, um, we we work with chimpanzees, and uh, they're very altruistic characters most of the time. Of course, they, they can also fight each other, but the same is true for humans, is that we are altruistic much of the time, but we also have lots of competition going. And so, for example, in, in our chimpanzees, we have, for example, an old female who can barely walk because of arthritis and can barely climb. And so we sometimes see younger females uh, go underneath her and push her up in the climbing frame so that she can join some grooming club or whatever she needs to do there. And so they help her a little bit, and that kind of thing happens all the time. So to bring all this back to laughter, it, it sounds as though contagious laughter is an expression of imitation within a social group, which is an expression of empathy, which may lead to sympathy in certain animals, which is an important quality for a group to have. Yeah, but it is also good to keep in mind that that laughter can have a negative component, and so laughter can have an aggressive component. If we make racial jokes, for example, or when when a group of people laughs at other people, not just laughing with them, but at them. Uh, so th- there's always two sides to this. Is we can use laughter to bond with each other, but if we use that bonding against a third group, it has different qualities. Franz de Waal, thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome. Franz Duval is a primatologist at Emory University and at the Yerkes Primate Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And now our last best science joke. If a bear in Yellowstone and a bear in Alaska both fall into the water, which would dissolve first? The Alaska bear, because it's polar. That's our last best science joke? I don't get it. Well, you see, water is a polar molecule. It has more charge on one side than the other. And if the bear is also composed of polar molecules, then it dissolves in the water. That's why water dissolves some things and not others. I have a final science joke. You ready? 
Okay. Two scientists walk into a bar, which is pretty funny because you think the second guy would have seen it. That's a really great joke. <laughs> Do you think we succeeded in our premise that science and humor go hand in hand? I'm somewhat doubtful. <laughs> Thanks to our Larger Than Laugh production staff for this program, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Keith Rosendahl, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here.